My name is Peter Kroll. I am one of the elders here in charge of our preaching ministry. If this is your first time with us, welcome. We are delighted to have you with us. As I prepare to preach God's word to you this morning, I would like to make a few announcements. First, my lovely wife Erin makes an amazing homemade pizza weekly. And we would like to invite you to come and eat as much of it as you would like every Tuesday night for at least the next three years. Second, I love spending time with you. So every Saturday afternoon, as long as I'm not out of town, I will take one of you out for a snack of your choice. We'll talk about our joys and sorrows in life, and then we will do any sort of activity you choose. A movie, a board game, a Nerf battle, whatever you want, it's yours, and I'm there with you. And my final announcement... When the Lord Jesus takes Aaron and me to be home with him, everything he has graciously given to us will be thrown into a pot, divided up into portions, and shared with the rest of you. Those are my announcements. There's only one catch. Well, maybe, maybe two catches. Two catches. Catch number one is I will discipline you according to my house rules. And second catch, most importantly, you have to be a part of my family. Sorry if that excludes some of you, but those announcements I just made, they don't really apply to you unless you're a member of my family. Because that's how families operate. That's how God made families to operate. And I know that sadly, sometimes families do not operate this way. So maybe this sounds too good to be true. But God designed it so that there ought to be both great blessings and concrete expectations for the members of families. Especially because that's how God's own family operates. This morning we come to chapter 3 of the book of Proverbs in our study of this book. If you have one of the church Bibles, it's on page 495. And in this chapter we will learn that wisdom comes with both unbelievable blessing and loving discipline but only for members of God's family. You must join the family in order to experience the blessing. Is God's family something you would like to be a part of? I sure would, and this morning I'd like to show you why. Because we'll see that wisdom's tremendous blessings are only For the members of God's family. That's where we're going. Let me pray for us 
as we head into the text itself. Father in heaven, please grant us wisdom and open our eyes to see the unbelievable blessing and the loving discipline of being a part of your family. Please draw us in, make us your sons and daughters, and help us to revel in this relationship that we have with you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The first thing wisdom offers to members of God's family is unbelievable blessing. We see this in verses 1 through 10. So listen to what might sound almost too good to be true. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Let me stop there for now. This passage describes the unbelievable blessings that come along with finding and receiving wisdom from God. These ten verses are broken into five groups of two verses each. It's perfectly symmetrical. And each group of two verses highlights a different blessing. In verses 1 and 2, we have the blessing of longevity. You see, the teaching will add length of days and years of life and peace to you. Verses 3 and 4, there's a a, a blessing of favor. Walking in love and faithfulness will grant you favor and good success before both God and men. Verses 5 and 6, there's a blessing of guidance. Trusting God results in His making straight your paths. There you go. Walk on them. Verses 7 and 8 talk about the blessing of health. Fearing God will become your healing and your refreshment in verse 8. Healing to your flesh is talking about physical health and refreshment to your bones. Your bones is the ancient metaphor for describing psychological well-being or mental health. So both your mind and your body will obtain wellness. In verses 9 and 10, we see the blessing of finances. Honor God with your wealth and your barns will be filled with plenty. Your vats will be bursting with wine. So just imagine the sort of life described here. Wouldn't you love to have a life of longevity, favor, guidance, health, and wealth. 
What is there not to like about this? Doesn't it perhaps sound a bit too good to be true? Now, because these promises sound so amazing, some interpreters just don't know what to do with this passage. I mean, so many Bible teachers will use this text to preach a message of health and wealth for those who give enough, for those who sacrifice enough for the sake of God's kingdom. It says right here in verse nine, just honor the Lord with your wealth. That means you must write a check right now for this church. We've got a box in the back, stick it in there and God will surely bless you in return until your personal bank account is bursting. But this is a mistake as it goes against so many other passages in Scripture that speak of the suffering and the hardship we must endure for the sake of God's kingdom. So in reaction to that mistake, which is sometimes labeled the prosperity gospel, many other teachers will come to this text and either ignore it or write off the plain sense of these verses. And they'll propagate platitudes such as, well, Proverbs aren't promises. This book of the Bible offers only general truths or probabilities regarding how life often works, but not always. You can't treat them as promises. They're not automatic. Now, both of these approaches have something going for them. The first approach wants to take this text seriously. And the second approach wants to take the rest of the Bible seriously. However, I think both of these approaches fail to grasp how this passage fits within both the rest of the book of Proverbs and the rest of the Old Testament. So what are we supposed to do with this? Let me, let me show you some clues in the text that ought to grab our attention. They certainly would have grabbed the attention of the Jewish people to whom this book was written. First, in verse 1, when he commands the reader, whom he, he describes as my son, to not forget my teaching, the Hebrew word for teaching there is the word Torah which might not mean much to you, but if you've ever been around Jewish people, you've certainly heard that word before. The word Torah is the very word used to refer to the first five books of Moses, which are the first five books in our Bibles. That word is often translated as law in English, but scholars are always quick to point out that it doesn't really mean law the way modern Westerners think about law. It it generally means teaching or instruction. And frankly, it's a pretty normal word in the Old Testament. It comes up quite a bit to simply refer to some sort of teaching or other. It doesn't always refer to the books of Moses. So it might not be a big deal here, except that in verse 3, You see the phrase, steadfast love and faithfulness, these things that you must not let them forsake you. Steadfast love and faithfulness. This is the exact same phrase that God himself used on Mount Sinai 
when he revealed his name and his glory to Moses in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. It says, Yahweh passed before Moses and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in, here it is, steadfast love and faithfulness. That's one of the most important verses in the Old Testament. That shows us the character of God. And the combination of these two traits, steadfast love and faithfulness, when they're put together, it's never an accident in the Bible. It's got echoes of God revealing his name on Sinai. For example, in Psalm 25:10, all the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. Psalm 115, verse 1. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. And hear what the prophet Hosea says happens when God's people forget him. In Hosea 4, verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. You see, you can trace this phrase, steadfast love and faithfulness, throughout the Old Testament to see how these two things make up the fundamental nature of God's character. It is His steadfast love and His faithfulness that uphold the King and His people. And when the King and His people follow the Lord as they ought... Steadfast love and faithfulness are contagious and they pass on to the people and characterize their society. So in Proverbs chapter 3, we've got a reference to the father's Torah, his teaching, and we've got a reference to the steadfast love and faithfulness that ought to characterize God's people. All of these words are reminiscent of the books of Moses and of God's covenant. They're echoing back to what God did through Moses, his contractual relationship with his people, Israel, through Moses. And I don't think I'm just making this up. I don't think I'm seeing little mirages of Moses in this text because the connections continue on. At the end of verse 3, he could have very easily told his readers to write these things on their hearts. That phrase occurs in the Old Testament all the time. That would be very common. But he doesn't say that. He specifically says, write these things on the tablet of your heart. Prior to the book of Proverbs, nearly every time that word tablet is used, it refers to the stone tablets on which the Ten Commandments were written and handed to Moses. And in verse 5, when he says to trust in the Lord with all your heart, it sounds a whole lot like the most important commandment in the book of Deuteronomy, which is to love the Lord your God with all your heart. What's the point? Why am I pointing out all of these peculiarities of the vocabulary? It's because one or maybe even two of them might just be a coincidence. And we should read the words differently in a different context. But the fact that the poet keeps stacking up word after word and phrase after phrase that all echo God's covenant with the nation of Israel through Moses. This means that he wants his readers to have that Mosaic covenant in mind as they read this poem. 
Let me illustrate the significance of this. Let's say I were to write a poem to this church. And I begin it with the phrase, We the people of Grace Fellowship Church of State College. And a few lines later, the poem uses the phrase, A more perfect union. And then not much later in the poem, I refer to someone's health, but instead of using the word health, I choose an unusual synonym. I talk about their constitution. And just a few lines later, the poem goes out of its way to use the phrase, Bill of Rights. If I wrote a poem like that, most people in this church would know that I have the United States Constitution in mind. And that I want you to have the United States Constitution in mind as you read this poem. Even if I don't explicitly say so. Now, my humblest apologies to our dear international friends. I do try to keep my American trivia at a minimum in my sermons. And I will continue to do so. But in short, what King Solomon does in this brilliant poem is to talk about all the blessings of wisdom using the same language that Moses before him had used to describe the blessings of the covenant relationship between God and Israel. Covenant is just a fancy word for God's contractual relationship with that group of people. So in other words, Solomon here wants his people to know that walking in wisdom is simply another way of describing a life lived in faithful covenant with Yahweh, the God of Israel. So where does that leave us with respect to interpreting these tremendous promises of longevity favor, guidance, health, and wealth. And I would propose to you that we ought to interpret them the same way we would interpret the promises of blessing for keeping covenant with God laid out in the book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 28, if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city and blessed shall you be in the field. Verse 8, the Lord will command the blessing on you in your barns. And in all that you undertake, and he will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Verse 11, and the Lord will make you abound in prosperity, in the fruit of your womb, and in the fruit of your livestock, and in the fruit of your ground within the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give you. So what is the point? The point is that in in Deuteronomy 28, Moses was painting a picture of the paradise that was available to the people of Israel if they walk faithfully with their God. And now in Proverbs chapter 3, Solomon alludes to those very blessings to communicate, to reveal to the people that wisdom is the key component to make it possible. Wisdom is the key component that both 
enables your obedience to God's commands. And wisdom delivers the very promises of the covenant to you. As the Apostle Paul would later explain, however, there was a huge, huge problem for the people of Israel. While all of these blessings were available, the people of Israel could not change the fact that they were sinners in their heart of hearts. Sin in the human heart prevents proper obedience. It hinders our experience of God's blessings. This is why Jesus had to come and die as a substitute for us sinners. It was so that he could cleanse us from sin and give us his Holy Spirit. And in that way, in Jesus, the wisdom of God has appeared and become available to us in a way that it was never fully available to Solomon or to Moses or to the people that they spoke about. We are living in a new covenant now under Jesus Christ. We are not living under the covenant of Moses. So while the promises of Moses do still apply to us, they do not apply in the same way that they applied to the nation of Israel back then. When Jesus came, he did not always promise to his people longevity, favor, guidance, health, or wealth in the present age. He promises these things, every one of them to us, in the age to come. In this world, he says, you will have many tribulations, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. And these, these promises, and talking about the age to come, I'm not talk. don't mishear me, I'm not talking about dying and going to heaven. We talk about that too much. The Bible doesn't talk about dying and going to heaven. The Bible talks about being resurrected in the new heaven and the new earth where all of these blessings will be yours in very literal and physical ways. And I apologize. The Bible does talk about dying and going to heaven, but it doesn't focus on that. It focuses on what comes after that in the resurrection. That's what I meant to say. The Bible doesn't focus there. Jesus takes note of everything you lose for him in this age. And he has promised to return some of it back with interest now. Yes, he has. But he has promised to return all of it in a massive windfall in the resurrection. But don't miss the most important part. These promises of blessing are not for everyone. They're not even for all of those who do good things. These promises are only for those who walk in covenant with God through Jesus Christ. That's what all this covenant language is about. In other words, you have to be a member of God's family to get these blessings. This passage does not say that God is a cosmic vending machine. And you, if you put in your spiritual $1.75, then he must automatically spit out your blessed bag of chips or soft drink. No, these blessings are all about the loving relationship between a heavenly father and his sons and daughters. In his family, these blessings result from godly behaviors 
which follow when a person has trusted in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So by all means, you who have put your faith in Jesus Christ to rescue you from your sin, please, along with verse 1, do not forget his teaching. With verse 3, imitate his steadfast love and faithfulness. With verse 5, trust him with all your heart. With verse 7, don't be wise in your own eyes. And with verse 9, honor him even now with all your wealth. Especially the first of it, the first fruits. As you walk faithfully in loyal allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ, he will bless you for it. Maybe not in the ways you expect, maybe not at the times you expect, but the blessing will assuredly come. And it is wisdom for you to remember this and to live now in a way that expects an explosion of blessing from your God and Father on the last day and into eternity. But it's not always easy to live like this, is it? I mean, you signed up to be part of God's family. And what is a good family like? You see, if a parent gives their child whatever they want, whenever they want, it destroys the child, doesn't it? Have you seen them in public? The child who throws a fit and the parents continue trying to appease the child and give him or her whatever they want. Such children are not mature. They are not wise. They are not learning to grow up. They have learned only to love themselves and so they are just not pleasant to be around. Guess what? Our God is the best father we could ever have. He loves us way too much to destroy us like that. We do well to remember this so that we won't grow weary. And that's how our poem ends. That God treats his family not only with unbelievable blessing, but also, second, with loving discipline. We see this in verses 11 and 12. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. We learn from these verses that even the blessings to Israel under the covenant of Moses were never automatic as though God were an ancient vending machine. All those promises of blessing in verses 1 to 10. He tells his Israelite reader right here that you might not always receive those blessings in the way or at the time you prefer. Because Yahweh disciplines his children. That's what it means for him to love you. He trains you to be mature. He trains you to love what he loves. He trains you to do what he does. And he prepares you for suffering and hardship. 
God is not a father who coddles his children or helicopters them away from suffering or hardship. Why does he do this? Not because he hates his children, but because he loves them. Verse 12, he delights in them. Their hardship and their discipline is proof that they are his children. They are members of his family. So because of this, take note of the commands here in verse 11. Do not despise Yahweh's discipline. Do not grow weary of his reproof. And friends, I must confess that I have grown weary of the Lord's discipline over the years, especially the last few years. Hardship has come with such frequency and severity that I have struggled with despising it. What comforts me is that this is a normal struggle for the people of God. I think this is one reason why God gave us many, many psalms to give us a vocabulary for our groans. Such as one of my favorite prayers these days is Psalm 39, 13. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. Did you know that was a prayer in the Bible? But see, the Lord gives us a vocabulary for these prayers, but even such prayers are the prayers of needy children crying out to their father. You see, to turn away from God, to refuse, to pray to him, is to act as though you're not his child and he is not your father. So friends, please do not grow weary and do not lose heart. God reproves you because he loves you. God disciplines you because he delights in you. God brings hardship and pain to draw you closer to him and to help you grow in maturity. We just finished a baseball season with Charlotte's team. And at our next to last baseball game, we were facing the fastest pitcher in the league, this hulking young man who throws at an incredible speed for a 12-year-old. And he's not terribly accurate. His fastball hit one of our players square in the face. It was one of the most traumatic things I have ever seen happen in a youth baseball game. The kid went to the ER. He had to get three layers of stitches It was a miracle. We had two dentists on the field, and they said it was a miracle that no teeth or jawbones were broken by it. And I am incredibly impressed by both this kid and his parents. So that was our next to last game, and they did not want that to be his last memory of baseball before taking a four-month break through the winter. And so without coercing him against his will... They didn't coerce him, but they encouraged him to come back and play four nights later in our final game of the season. And that brave young man came out and he played 
hard. He stood his ground in the batter's box and he swung away. He did not bail out from fear a single time. And both during and after that game, I saw nothing but affection and closeness between this kid and his parents. His loving parents who were helping him learn to endure severe hardship. I was deeply inspired by this family. Just as I have been deeply inspired by many of you, such as the Schreckengasts, the Dripses, the Scots, among others, those of you who have suffered severely while obeying these verses, you have not despised the Lord's discipline. You have not grown weary of his reproof. And your examples give us just a picture of the love of God the Father for his children, which is possible only because of what Jesus did by dying on the cross. Friends, through hardship, God does not want to wreck your life. He wants to give you what is best for you. Don't despise it. Don't despise his, children, his discipline. Don't act like you're not his children or like you don't want him as your father. Because this is what a good father does and he's the best of fathers. And when you trust in Christ, all the unbelievable blessings of wisdom are yours, even when life is hard. But these benefits are available to you only if you join God's family. If you are not yet his child, if you are not yet a member of God's family, I invite you to trust Jesus today. Please talk to me afterward. Let me know if there's any way I can help. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are so grateful that we can come to you as needy children to the best of fathers. Lord, we are trusting in you big time to deliver a windfall in the resurrection. And Jesus, you even promised to deliver some of it now to give us that foretaste to inspire our hope and remind us of the truth. Help us not to grow weary of your reproof when the blessings don't come in the way we would prefer or at the time we would prefer. May we walk with you and delight in being your children. Be our wisdom, Lord Jesus. And strengthen us and help us to look to you for the greatest riches. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.